Hello and welcome to episode four of Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things podcast series. Um, this is a belter. So I recorded this probably six months ago with Tim Little from Grenson's. And I'm not going to tell you the Grenson's story, but um, Tim does that eloquently. It's quite a long one and it was recorded in his factory um, on an iPhone it's before I bought a proper kit. So it's a little bit echoey, but please bear with it because... Tim Tim explains what it takes to buy and launch relaunch a brand and actually it's not it's not all about advertising although it's partly it's not all about developing and communicating a brand although it is partly it's all about building and leading teams and and it's about you know leading himself so he he goes through the process um in, in quite some detail and, and it's a long story not just long as in it takes an hour but it's a long story because the roots or the seeds for it were planted some time ago and then they were left to germinate and um and left to, to kind of grow and and I think the business is all the better because of that so please bear bear, bear with it in terms of sound quality it's worth listening to and enjoy it so, like everything I've done here, I've uh, um, since I started in 2005. Everything I've done, I've started by looking back into what Grenson did before. So I've always not always copied what they did before, but always wanted to understand that if we were going to do something new or change direction in any way, was there any precedent for it in the past? And just just kind of to keep the the DNA of the brand intact yeah. and not just to go, right, we're going to totally change the, the model of the business overnight um, and it's got nothing to do with anything we've ever done in the past is a shame and ultimately once you break all of the ties with the past then it's just a, a, a brand name and it doesn't mean anything, you know. So I looked at, um, when I got here, about 80% of the shoes that, that they were selling were A, they were Goodyear welted, which is the old English yeah. way of making a shoe, um, and B, they were made in India. And I look back into the history of that, I've got this guy to do the kind of history. Basically, in the 1950s, one of the Green family, the original family, went on a trip to America, saw that um, everybody was wearing kind of moccasin loafers, businessmen were mm-hmm. wearing black, um, very soft, very thin sole moccasin loafers um, made by Bally. So Bally do a thing called the Swiss Mock, we used to, and it used to be enormous, enormous sales, very, very comfortable slip-on shoe. And that became the big thing. So the chunky, heavy, English-made Goodyear welted shoe was being threatened back in the early 60s kind of thing. So this guy went over to India, where most of them were made, because the skills in India are fantastic for stitching. Yeah. Wonderful hand, hand stitching. And he set up production, and Grenson started selling them, alongside what the Goodyear welted shoes they were making in England. But they were getting the uppers made there, and then brought over here, and they had one factory just putting soles on, and the other factory making welted shoes. Uh, and the fact that it made it, because the, the rule, this is a bit long-winded, but the rule in the shoe business, a lot of products that you buy, people don't realise, but a lot of products that you buy are made in more than one place. So if you buy a car and it says it was made in Germany, the engine may have been made in Spain, the tyres may have been made somewhere, you know, and they assemble it. In, and every industry has a kind of rules as to... What are you allowed to say? Which bit of the process is key to being able to say it was made in that country? Sure. In shoemaking, it, the making of the shoe is when you put the upper and the sole together. Right? Okay. That's the making of the shoe. So it's not regarded as a shoe until the two go together. So putting them together is where you're making the shoe. And that's kind of been the rule. Um, so what that means is that a lot of companies, well, any company, if they want to, can get the uppers made in India, China, wherever they want. They can get them cut, stitched, polished, lasted. They can get the soles cut, trimmed, polished. They can bring them over here and they can have a tiny little factory, a little unit somewhere, put a bit of glue on, stick the two together, and that's a made in England shoe. 
This is crazy. Yeah, that's absolutely, you know, the way. So I got here, and I won't name names, but there are very few English factories, shoe factories, that don't do at least some of that. Sure. Some of the ones we talked about earlier, yeah. um, that's their main business. So I got here, Grantson had this enormous um, history of making of relationships in India, really nice relationships as mm. well, with really lovely factories and family-owned factories and, and what have you, and they'd built it up over, over the years, and making really high-quality, beautiful shoes. So I thought, well, the, the main task for me at Grantson is to make this brand younger because it had got older and older and older and older and therefore smaller and smaller and smaller because it was old fashioned, it was it, the, basically the brand was dying with its customers. So we had to make it younger. The first thing with a younger person, a 35 year old let's say, not even 25 but a 35 year old would dream, there's, there's, would, uh, there's such a tiny, tiny number of people who are 35 who would pay 350, 400 pounds for a pair of shoes. So, and the price point to make a pair of shoes here properly and to make a reasonable living out of it is about 400 pounds now. Yeah. Without this half made there, half made here to do it properly. Under 400 pounds, it's almost not worth doing. So you go 400 pounds, how many people are going to spend 400 pounds in a pair of shoes? It's tiny and it's never going to go anywhere. So I said, well, what we're going to do, we're going to use our relationships in India to continue that because who am I to say that's wrong? It's been 60 years, 50 years, 60 years they've been working in India. So it wasn't my choice. And I'm going to go over there, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to work out, first of all, I'm not going to make moccasins, those moccasins anymore. I'm going to go back to welted shoes. So all we're going to make is welted shoes. And then we're going to do different collections. We're going to go, this collection here is made in India. It's designed here. Um, we source the leather ourselves. Nearly all of the leather comes from uh, um, Italy or France, a little bit from Spain. We're going to do absolutely everything the way we would here, but then we're going to take the shoes there to a factory, beautiful handmade factory in India, in Chennai. They're going to make the shoe. We're going to brand it. We're going to say what it is. We're going to give it a name for that collection. Honest and transparent. Yes, yeah, it doesn't say made in India, although it's going to soon, but it does on the website. So on the website, yeah. you can see that. There. And then that's 100% made there and we're going to be absolutely open and honest about it. All the people we sell to, we say to them, you know, we don't put a thing in the box going, by the way, this is made in in India, only because I was nervous about that. Yeah. I'd really love to do a film in the, in the factory in India. That's what I'd you need do, to do. I'd love to do it, but I, it, you say that, but it, you just don't know what the reaction would be. It could be awful, you know, it could like half the business overnight and we'd be laying people off. Yeah. So I've taken the tack that we're absolutely honest and open about it, but we're not going to throw it in people's faces because when we've talked to customers, nearly all of our customers know that we do make them in India, but they don't necessarily want you to keep shouting about it. Yeah. So one day that might change, but anyway, so we did that and then we said, and then in our factory, we're going to make the shoes in our factory better and better and better quality. We're just going to work so hard at making them the best shoes that we possibly can. But they're going to be skin to box. They're literally going to make, be made the old-fashioned way. We're going to, um, the leather comes in here and they go out um, completely fully made shoes. We don't do any processes anywhere else. So if you, and you have the choice. You can buy this shoe here, and it's made in our factory in England, fantastic, 100%, no tricks, no nothing. You buy this shoe here, we've designed it, it's in many cases the same leather, um, but it's less expensive. But it's made in a really nice factory. And that's it's just a function of labour prices. Yeah, it's just a function of labour prices, you yeah. know, the cost of living in this country for these people to have... What that they have to be paid a lot of money because of their taxes, because of their you know their lifestyle and yeah. everything. It's just literally labour cost. The people who work in the factory in India are paid so much less than these guys, yet they're regarded as middle class in India. 
because they're paid so much better and they lead good, really good lives. They're not, they're not paupers by any means. They're, they're kind of middle class and they live in nice places, but the cost of living to them is just a fraction. You know, they don't travel, they don't go, you know, to, to Spain on holiday and they don't, you know, their costs are so much less. Now, I looked into this a lot because it's really important yeah. to me. And so I've worked with this family who own the factory um, from the beginning and I go there quite a lot and, <clears throat> and I want to know all this about how they look after their people and I talk to their people when I'm there. So that was our model and it's worked beautifully. So the younger guys will come in and buy the, often buy the Indian product. Yeah. Um, they, um, is that a more fashionable product as well? Have you, have you tends to be a bit, but I, I really like the idea of not not making this kind of boring, you know, old-fashioned city shoes, and that's kind of fashion. And uh, I really like the idea of some of the stuff, a lot of the stuff being made here, yeah. being interesting and modern and different. Yeah. So as a brand, we do a lot less of the really traditional, boring, black toe-cap Oxford shoe yeah. that is the staple for churches or Crockett and Jones or whatever, and do much more of like the white soles and the, you know, this boxing boot here on this table here, this is a made in England shoe. Yes. And that's uh, made with Stead Suede, which is a, uh, one of the last tanneries in England. Um, in Leeds, just outside Leeds. It's, it's, I mean, that's a stunning, that's a stunning, but that's a triple weld sole. So, so, so the story of that sole is a great example of what we do. So, a guy in the factory um, about four years ago came to me and said, "Oh, I've just done this new kind of way of making a sole, and I was just wondering what he thought of it." Did it in his lunch hour. And he came up and he showed me. Like, do, you that sole. do you encourage that? You, totally, yeah. That kind of innovation, that kind of side yeah. project. Yeah, because what I love about that, and I tell in the press whenever we've been interviewed about that particular um, soul, because we made a big deal about it, so we got quite a bit of press on there. I say it came from the factory. It didn't come from a designer. It came from the factory, and that's the most beautiful design because the guys making it have come to me and they've shown me something that they've thought of out of, they've designed it out of making. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They haven't got a piece of paper and gone, wouldn't this look beautiful? They haven't done it from an aesthetic point of view in their head. They've done it from a making point of view. Um, so it came direct out. So I then, I then gave it a name, Triple Well, gave it a logo. We did a box and a bit, you know, because you have to dress the You're so good at this story. as well, Tim. This is your... Well, I think it's, it's the thing that was missing from the, the shoe industry and why I got involved in the first place. They have all these wonderful stories, but they don't tell them. And they don't know how to tell them. And that they just think the job is to make nice shoes and, and people will come and buy them and it doesn't work like that. You tell a story, you know, people love a story. They love to know where things have come from, how they've been made, what the, you know, what the history is of it, and everything. Monkey boot. It's got it's got a monkey boot kind um, of got feel. More of a monkey boot. Um, where's the? I'll show you one later. I'm just I'm just about to buy it because DMs have bought a nice monkey boot, which is I yeah. know probably. I mean, the way Dr. Martins have gone as a brand is really interesting. Um, and they, I mean, they're still making the UK, but obviously they're making it overseas for, the, I guess, the same, the same reasons. Well, they're, they're a fascinating story because they're from Rushton as yeah. well. And they literally, the men's shoe market, they employed hundreds of thousands of people. So what they used to do was they used to make the sole. Yeah. yeah. They used to make the sole and then other factories would make the shoes. And put that and buy their souls. So George Cox. Yeah, I think that's what I've got. Isn't here, isn't it? Well, so George George Cox used to make Dr. Martin. So you'd have George Cox buy Dr. Martin. So you'd have George Cox with a Dr. Martin soul, or sometimes George Cox would make a shoe that just said Dr. Martin's. Oh. Then Dr. Martin's decided about 20 years ago, probably, they were going to stop that. They were going to stop other people making shoes for them and they were going to make them all themselves. So they started, they literally overnight told all the factories that were all employed making Dr. Martins um, that they were going to take it all in-house. So half of the factories just closed down overnight. That's tragic. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's very difficult for people around here. 
And then they decided, um, after a bit, they were making a hell of a lot of shoes, and then they decided to put everything over to China. Yeah. And again, they shut all their production down completely, took it over to China. And then more recently, I think about five years ago maybe, maybe a bit more, they, they realised that the whole heritage made in England thing was big. And for marketing reasons, they opened a small factory and started making a few made in England shoes. Yeah. But um, so they've done it that way. But they did have a cut where they stopped making anything. I, I, I remember. I mean, as a as a forty eight year old man who bought his first docks in nineteen seventy four when I was yeah. six, yeah. they've been my brand. Yeah. And they were they were an affordable British shoe, yeah. so that they were my brand. Loved a monkey boot as well, but actually it was the DMs. Yeah. And then when they, I loved DMs as well. they when they stopped making here, I fell out of love with them. Yeah. And it was only the lifeline of them reopening something, I don't know what, how big that is, that made me go back to them. And the Docks for Life, actually. Yeah. But they're made in China. They're not made here. Are they? they started off being yeah. made here. And the leather, have you ever seen a pair? I almost wore them today, actually. Yeah. The leather is exceptional. Is it? Yeah. It's how much uh, are they? Um, about, uh, the shoes are about 150 and the boots are maybe 200 um, roughly. Yeah. But they're the same in dollars. So I bought mine in America um, three years ago. And then you register online with your name. I registered as M. Shayla, so my son, or my daughters, if they've got size 10, they could have the same benefit because they've all got the same initial. Um, uh, all but one. And, um, and the soles are of two mil thicker. And the laces are, um, they've got a really lovely cap on the, I don't know what that bit's called, but yeah, the cap on the lace. Yeah. St st beautiful shoe, really stunning, and the classic 1460 cut. They've not gone. You know, they went narrow for a little yeah, while. Yeah, yeah. I call it a police shoe. Yeah. They ended up changing the the, the, the cut. They've yeah. gone back to the original 1460 and the 1461 in the boots. Um, they're, they're stunning. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, they're not what I thought I was buying. Yeah. I thought I was buying one made here and, yeah. and, I did. and that's not my, my motivation. Yeah, yeah. My motivation is to have a pair of shoes that last me till I die. Yeah. But it, it, it's, in, it's really interesting. Mm. Um, so, so, I mean, the, I love that idea of a guy on his, or a girl on, on their lunch break coming up with a triple layered welt. Yeah. And what else, what else have you done? What, what else have they, have they innovated from the factory floor? Has um, made it. That's the biggest thing. But they, they've done uh, various kind of sole finishes, the way they, you know, the way they paint the soles and things like that. What else have we done? They're, they're lots of little details where we've designed something and they've gone, that's going to be quite difficult to do. And there's a different way of doing it. How do you feel about changing that scene, that, you know, like this, whatever? Um, so lots and lots of little details on all the shoes. Come out of the factory, and do, do you form um, do you formalise those kind of factory to product innovation things, or is it or is it they just say we've got this great idea, Tim, and, and, and it, it what, what I found was that you know there used to be, and in many factories now, there's this um, incredible uh, kind of wall between the office and the factory. Mm. And we've broken that down here. Well, quite literally. There well, is literally, a yeah, exactly. And they, and they can go wherever they want, and they can do... We did that canteen where I was making the yeah. thing. That's everybody's canteen. Everybody eats in there. Everybody makes their own tea and coffee and what have you. So by doing that, you have conversations with them all every day. And so they do, I don't formalise it. I literally... They know that if they've got something interesting, they'll do it, they'll show me and I'll, I'll go away and think about it. That's brilliant. Yeah. I, the, the, only, the only shame, I think, is that I'm travelling quite a lot and sometimes I don't have enough time, you know, and I'll come back and there are three or four things on my desk and I don't, you know, get enough of them don't go into production because I don't, I don't spend enough time on it. But so how, so how can you solve that? I mean, because you obviously you can't, you can't duplicate yourself. Yeah. And you have to do the travelling. Yeah. Is there somebody else here that can, that can lead? When well, you've I've, got a design, I've got two designers downstairs who, who they can do more of that. Um, they're probably a bit more sceptical about it than I am because they're designers, so they, they don't want you know, the ideas to be coming from the factory, they want them to come from them. Um, but yeah, no, that, so, kind of how do we? That's a really interesting mm. challenge you've just laid out there. Mm. Because 
design has become like that. It's become very closed. Yeah. And, the, and the whole essence of design for me is it, it's unbelievably open. It's, yeah. it's a collaborative process. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's become really closed as it's sought to professionalise itself, almost to protect itself. We, we, you can't do it, we can. Yeah. How, do, how do you create a culture? Because well, you, you personify this. How do you spread that to those... They're not just those guys, girls, but anybody else in the business where, where it's okay to go, actually, yeah, you're right, we could learn from you. How do you do that? Um, I think just by, by, you have to kind of lead by example. So I think the, the triple wealth thing, um, that came from the factory. We, I put it into production and made it go, showed it to the sales team. We, you know, we went out and sold it and it worked and it's still working and it's been great. So they've seen, everybody's seen that it can work. Yeah. That's the only way to do it, I think, just to make it happen. And then people are, okay, so when somebody knocks on the door and says, um, I've got another idea, you're going to go, oh, let's have a look. You know, the last one you came up with. was a cracker. was a cracker. And it, and it was great for the business. Um, so, yeah. Have you ever been tempted to do the clothing line, the bags? Have you ever been tempted to... We do do bags. Do you? We do do bags a bit, yeah. Um, not clothing, but what we... The furthest with... I, I always want to be a, a shoe company. And um, I've often said about how I always buy like a watch from a watch company. You know, I ne I've never bought like a Paul Smith watch. Okay. I bought, and, and I'm a bit like that. So I want us to be known as a specialist. But I think um, they, or our customers almost expect us to do accessories. I'd buy a belt from you, because I know you know yeah, that. Exactly, but bags, belts, socks, shoe care, you know, Kind of within a certain sphere, um, clothing to me is is a real jump into a, into another world. It's almost like us saying we're going to do cars. It's like uh, for some reason people see it as if you do shoes, you should be able to do a bag. You know, a bag and shoe, that's fine. But clothing, um, I think probably because clothing is seen as almost more important in a store. You know, a lot of stores have just masses of clothing everywhere and then a little rack of shoes in the back. See, I, I'm old, and I grew up in the, um, I was born in the 60s, grew up in the 70s and 80s, and I loved the flamboys. I loved the 70s, it, it started with glam rock and it ended, it ended with scar, and, and everything in between, apart from progressive rock, I really loved, but I loved the fashions that came with that, and the flamboyance. Street fashions. Loved it all. 80s started with Scar, yeah. New Romanticism, yeah. um, went through the Smiths, and yeah. the kind of indie grungy, then into the, the Stone Roses, and then it got crazy with baggy jeans and kickers. Yeah. But I loved the flamboyance of those, of those times, and, and what frustrates me now, I stand on the station at Tamworth, and okay, Tamworth is a old town, it's Britain's most buoyant town, allegedly. Yeah. England's most buoyant town, yeah, apparently. Yeah. I stand there, and it's a sea of black, and, and maybe they've thought about their clothes, maybe. And then I look at their shoes, and okay, I'm a shoe-aholic. Yeah. I look at their shoes, and frankly, it's just disappointing shit flickers. Yeah. And oh God, yeah. they're an afterthought in men's minds, yeah. women's different, that therefore they're an afterthought in store. And so the focus is always on the club and our shoes are over there. Mm. And actually, start, I always build from the bottom. I always start with a shoe and then build, and build up. Yeah. And, and then when I do my talk, and if I turn it now and anything boring, by the way, yeah. boring would mean a pair of brogues, because yeah. I don't have crap yeah. shoes, um, people are disappointed in me because they've heard that I like my shoes. So I've actually got a real yeah. problem. Yeah. And people, people will look at my shoes and buy what I'm wearing. It's really, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. But you're right, sh shoes are very much seen as... They're, they're, they're often un uncared for, mm. unpolished, yeah. worn down beyond the point of, of repair, yeah. and, and then thrown, thrown away. But they're not seen as a central part of, a, of, of, of tailoring, and yeah. they are. Yeah. And I don't know how we change that. I, don't, I mean, I love what you've done with Brenton and turned a literally dying brand into this proud, bristling British brand that people really aspire to. I can't think of anybody else that's done it as well. Oh, it's very kind of you to say so. Well, it's true. Um, yeah, I, well, it, 
That's very kind of you to say. I think um, it's the only only thing to do, make people fall in love with the brand, you know, and it happens to be a shoe brand, you know, that's the way we kind of look at it. I think um, we're not just selling shoes, we we're, we're really want people to love what we do. Um, and so they'll do that, they'll fall in love and they'll start buying shoes and they'll start thinking about shoes much more than they used to. And we do, we have absolute shoe nutters now. You know, people have got thousands of shoes, you know, shoes and collect them and put them in boxes and, you know, somebody tweeted the other day that they've called their dog Branson and, um, you know, and I thought, I mean, post pictures of this dog called Branson, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And that's, it's the only way, really. I think it's, um, it's not just about making people think about shoes. For us, it's about them loving the brand. I agree. Um, and the other thing that helps us, actually, bizarrely, is people always say to me, I can't believe anybody buy, you know, or older people say to me, I can't believe um, people buy shoes on the internet, you know, that must be really weird, because how do you know they're going to fit? But it's the exact opposite of that. So Mr. Porter, for example, their biggest, um, their biggest category of shoes, by miles. Is it? Yeah. And shoes, the one thing that everybody knows their size. I don't know why people think it's odd. It's the one thing that you go, I'm a size 8. Yeah. I'm a, some people even go, I'm, a, I'm an 8F in church, I'm an 8E in Crockett and Jones. Or, but they know I'm an 8, I'm a 9, I'm a 9.5, I'm an 8.5 if it's got a pointy toe and a nut, you know. And with a shirt, you go, oh, fucking hell, in some brands I'm a large, some brands I'm a medium, some things it's like, is it 42? I'm or a 46 16 and a half. Or 16 and a half. I've no idea. And isn't that interesting? So. I mean, shoes were still what I would call imperial rather yeah. than the, the metric, but we all understand it. I'm a nine and a half, that's yeah. what I am. Um, everything else, we flip between the two, a 42-inch chest yeah. and a 16-inch or a 15 and yeah. a half inch collar. Yeah. And then both, or a large or a medium. Exactly. Or a, what does that mean? Or, or, or when I'm wearing um, Nigel Cable, I'm a 52. What is that? Yeah, that's, that's not inches. Continental, isn't it? It's continental, but it's yeah. not centimetres. Yeah. So what is, well you're dead right, shoes. Yeah. Shoes are easy. And the comparison, the shift between a 43 yeah. and a 9, it's really easy, isn't the it? The only thing that's slightly confusing is that sneakers tend to be a size smaller. So I, I wear a size 8 in any formal, normal shoes at all. Whatever brand it is, I'm always an 8 for some reason. And then when I buy Adidas Gazelles, um, I'm a size 9. And I've no idea why. Uh, I well, don't know why. I can, particularly with that, so I love it. I'm a big Adidas fan. Yeah, so I'm um, And I'm a big Nike fan, and I'm a big Puma yeah. fan. And the Puma yeah. Adidas story in itself is exceptional. Yeah. The Gazelle is a very narrow last. Uh, and so often, it's like a converse. I'm a size up in a converse, and I'm a size up in a Gazelle. Yeah. Because, it, because I'm buying the wrong width shoe. Yeah. They're built for a very thin, and they're very, the Gazelle is a very straight last. And I, I, I play this game, I'm very sad. I look at people wearing gazelles and their feet stick out over the, often oh, yeah. over the side of the shoe yeah. because they've gone for their standard size, yeah. perfect in length, yeah. but they've got this lump of foot yeah. Yeah. sticking out over the bottom. And, I, and I, it's actually a weakness in the gazelle. They, they, there's, there's a re... Yeah, have, you look next time. Yeah. And, and you will fit into an eight yeah. with lengthways, but it will feel horrible on your foot because yeah, yeah. you're spreading out over the side. Yeah. And, and, and I'm exactly the same with Converse. I much prefer a PF Flyer yeah. and I much prefer a Van yeah. because they are, or Vans in particular, being skateboard shoes, mm. made very wide because yeah. all of your pressure's coming down on your, in your toe box yeah. and, your, and your foot spreads out when you're skating. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it is interesting, um, whereas the Shelto, yeah. I think they're now called the Superstar, yeah. they're a very wide shoe, yeah. very, very wide shoe, so you'll be a standard, I'm guessing you'll be a standard size yeah. in, in, that in that. But um, I mean, it's interesting, I noticed you've got some sneakers, are these on the market yet? Uh, no, so we're, these are, um, the, we're selling these in, there's hardly anything in here at the moment, because everything's out on the road, we're selling in at the moment, autumn, winter. So these are for autumn winter. So this one here, next this to one. that one, yeah. um, that's, that's basically um, the main sneaker that we've been doing. The one we've sold most by miles is in kind of... Um, this is lovely, but you know what? I want to see it in yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, what we did was, not, not necessarily flat, but we did this really beautiful hand-painted leather. Um, so where, where we've done a sneaker, yeah. but in our normal kind of, in, not this, but something like this, even nicer than this. Where we've done a sneaker, but in Grenson proper leather, that sold really well. But we've also done them in bright colours, in um, you know, bright coloured suede, and things, yeah. pink and yellow. And pink and yellow are my favourite two yeah. colours at the moment. I'm yeah. in love with them. And the, and the, and the boots? Oh, so this... Um, this is basically um, this. This is a collaboration with a guy called Kazuki, who does who's done various things with Adidas. He's done Kazuki Adidas by Kazuki, and we got to know him in Japan. Um, and I said to him, "Would you like to do a sneaker with us? Like a little, basically, you know, very basic canvasy sneaker?" And he said, "Yeah, I'd love to." That's beautiful. So we just did. Uh, we've done that. Yeah. And that feels like a PF flyer. Yeah, it's all very hand done. I mean, it's. Yeah, really lovely materials, and it's not like a converse. Which no. is, I mean, and they're all slightly different. You can see they're all, you know, the way it's stuck on and everything. Yeah, so, so, so you're really experimenting. Really and that's British Millerain um, canvas on that one, yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a great, that's a great brand. Yeah. And I just, and I love the little, just the hints of Grenson, the hints of yeah. the broguing on the, on the heel. Yeah. Cap. It's just yeah. stunning. Absolutely stunning. So they'll be, yeah, they'll be um, kind of the summer onwards. Summer so, this so, year. So we had a, we had a thing. This is an interesting business thing. We had, we're like selling in about, what's it? Say about a year ago, we were we were seeing all of our customers, Selfridges and da, 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 and they just kept coming in, going. Um, one after the other, Mr. Porter and clothing, they're just coming in and going, do you know what, we're only selling sneakers. We're not selling any, any other, part. you know, when they say we're only selling sneakers, they mean they're selling a hell of a lot of sneakers and not very much, they don't mean they're literally not selling any of these shoes. Sure. They say it's unbelievable. They, they'll put sneakers out from any brand, from at one end, Dolce and Gabbana with studs on or crystals on or something like that. At the other end, an Adidas or a Nike. And everything in between. You know, Paul Smith, Ted Baker, anybody, the whole lot. Um, and we're just selling, we're selling bucket loads. We put it out on the floor, within two weeks we've sold through. And then a formal shoe like this um, is like falling off the cliff. Yeah. Jesus Christ, the first people came in and we just thought that must just be a quirk of their store and you know, let's not worry about it too much. Then it was like the second one, the third one, the fourth one, fucking hell. We knew that sneakers were getting bigger and bigger, um, but they've just gone ballistic. Yeah. So I had to sit down and go, right, what I've been doing I'm, from the beginning, um, I've said we want to come back to old English shoemaking, which is Gucci Welter. And we're going to do that, and at least until we've re-established a proper identity for the company, and people know we're an old English company. We, you know, everything about it is, you know, chunky formal shoes. It all fits until people get it. And I suddenly thought, right, now is the time I can step out of that a bit because I've got to. I've got to. And I, again, look back into the history of the company, and whenever they felt the business going away from them they would follow the trend, they would always follow the trend, they would always regard themselves as not here to make a certain shoe and say that's what we do and you can fuck off yeah. if you don't like it, but we make shoes for people to wear and if they want to wear a, a lightweight loafer, we'll make that, that's what yeah. we'll do, we'll just make it really But well. you'll make it as well as the thing that made you we'll, famous? Yeah, we'll make it in our way, we'll make it with our materials, we'll make it the way we think it should be made but it's not for us to tell people you have to wear this type of shoe. I thought, okay, well, we're gonna do a sneaker. Now's the time. I could be sitting here with a company with half the sales and laying people off. Or I could say, let's do Gregson does sneakers. And it's been great, it's been liberating for me. It's the first time in 10 years that I've done that. And nobody, and that, and that must be incredible, incredibly free, because you'll do it again now with other things. You'll yeah. do more of it. Yeah. But nobody has nailed that top end, that Prada, Dolce & Gabbana, 
No one does sneakers well. No. They do them because they have to have them in the market, yeah. and people with that kind of level of income will go, always buy those shoes because yeah. they don't want a common or garden sneaker. No one does it well. That's the best baseball boot I've seen outside of the original PF Flyer, which is the original boot. Yeah, yeah. That's the best baseball boot I've seen, and, right. and it, it feels lovely in the hand, yeah. and, and it feels different, it looks different. Yeah. And the bumper, the ridged bumper, yeah. I don't know whether that's a facet of that designer, or whether that's a Grenson thing. But that was me, that was, I, I briefed them on how to do it, and they showed me different options, and that, yeah, it, just it making it look a bit... Stands yeah. out. Yeah. It's a, it's, a it's a beautiful boot. Yeah. Um, so what's the future? Where are you going to go from here? Um, we, it's difficult. We, we spend a lot of time making sure our online business works well. So um, that's growing really nicely, and we see that as... Um, how do we make that experience just fantastic for people? So it's not just about a pair of shoes, it's about people. I love the idea that you know somebody like you feels that certain brands are your brands, mm -hmm. right? Dr. Martins is your brand. You, you, yeah, you, Dr. Martins like I like club for you. Yeah. It's like your thing. I love that idea, and I think um, you're born that way. Other people aren't, but I think we can make them that way by really looking after them. They buy a pair of shoes, if something goes wrong with them, of course they do, we make a lot of their handmade, things go wrong sometimes. We totally sort it out instantly. Um, and we look after people, we make the experience nice, we have a shop for them if they want to go to the shop. And, uh, to that side of it, the service side and, and the backup, there are a lot of products out there like um, like, you know, I've always bought Harrington jackets, for example, Barracuda, and the service is like dreadful, and it's so bad, and I got, I got one um, six months ago, this box turned up, and it was like that big, yeah. and I opened it up, and it was scrunched up in a space about that at the bottom, nothing with it, it was just awful, and I thought, what a shame, because one day I'm going to find a jacket that I prefer to that somewhere, or I'll read about yeah. it, you know. And I'll uh, and I'll just say, fuck it, I'm not doing it anymore. And I want, with Grants, I want people to love the business, the company, everything about it, not just the pair of shoes they bought. No, I agree. So it's about developing that more and more. And because more and more people buy online instead of in the store, that um, gives us an opportunity because um, when our shoes are in Selfridges, or they're in a store in Sydney, in Australia, or you know, we have no idea whether somebody's polished them, do they look nice, are they even on the shelf? Yeah. Um, do the staff know anything about them? Can they tell the story? Do they know that that's dead suede and it's absolutely beautiful? And, um, whereas online, we're selling direct, we can tell everybody everything, we can put a little booklet in the shoes, we can email them, we can, you know, we, we can really look after them. That's really interesting. When you, when, when you think about online, the traditional view is that it dislocates the customer from the brand. What you're saying, and I completely see this, is that it creates a, be a better controlled relationship with the customer. They get what you want to show them. Yeah. They have a direct line back to you. Yeah. And you can then work on that relationship. Because they won't just buy, if they love you, they won't just buy one pair, yeah. they'll buy a pair for them, a pair for their partner, and they'll Absolutely. buy a pair in five years' time, or however yeah. long it is that yeah. they want to change or, 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 or buy a second pair. Mm. So digital for you is a connector rather than a divider. Definitely. Absolutely, 100%. Especially when it comes to comparing it to wholesale. So with your own stores, um, that's debatable. Um, although you could say, you buy a pair of shoes online from us and it's pretty much seamless, like almost nothing goes wrong, you know, and, it, and there's nothing, it, it's all there, all the information's there. If you want to know about your size, if you want to know about what the leather is, if you want to know about everything, it's there. In our store, we might have a brand new part-timer and the store manager might have gone to get a sandwich and that, and you say, well, what kind of leather's that? And they don't know, you know, maybe. So you can control it more. Um, I still love our in-store experience because it's so personal. 
Um, but our wholesale experience, you have no control over it. It's generally terrible because if you imagine the, the shoe department in Selfridges, which is our biggest sales of any, any department, um, the staff change in there on a weekly basis. Um, the staff have probably 2,000 shoes, 3,000 shoes in that department. They can't possibly know about all We do staff training. They don't remember it. They we don't know start. anything. So they can't tell you about. So a guy comes in from America, what's this? Brunson, I quite like this shoe, what is it? They have no idea. They don't even know we're an English company or, you know. So online, we've got, it's all there. Here's the history, here's the there, this is what we think, this is why we do this, this is what we do. So you're, so you're, that's really, that's really interesting because then you get somebody who just works Saturdays and they're, they've missed out on all that training potentially yeah. anyway. So the, the swing ticket, the tag, the, the amount of space you've got to communicate to the customer by putting something hanging off the shoe has to work really, really hard for you. Yeah. It on has to. On the wholesale side, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It has to communicate exactly your brand essence. Yeah. And it has to communicate enough of a history to make them realise that it's a British traditional shoe. Yeah. And it has to communicate why it's worth the money that they're charging, that you're charging for, which isn't stupid yeah. money. Yeah. Um, and it has to make them smile. That's, yeah. that's a lot, isn't it? That's a hell of a lot. And it's probably not possible. And that's why we use shorthand. That's yeah. why brands like Converse and DM, they, they, those, those brands, people know what they stand for already. Yeah. And that's the, that's the magic that I see in Grenson, is that you're beginning to, more than beginning, people now hold... No, beginning, you're, you're right, beginning. You know, um, Dr. Martin's been doing it for 70 years or whatever. You know, they started out with a story. Their original idea was a story. And they had to sell that idea, and they've been selling it ever since, about why he designed that sole. Um, and they've been doing it ever since, whereas Grenson has been a factory making shoes. And never, until the late 80s, never even considered talking to the consumer about anything. Their job was to talk to the wholesale customer, to sell to him, and then it was his job to sell your shoes to the final customer. I, I've worked, I've advised over a thousand businesses in the last 25 years and that's one of my key questions is are you talking to the real customer yeah. or are you talking to the person you're selling to? Yeah. Because the person they're selling to is, is the important one yeah. and increasingly as retail is, uh, continues to be in crisis and, and, and flay around not really understanding what it's for anymore, those direct relationships with customers, end customers, that's what will make you brilliant and somebody else dreadful. Yeah. And, and, and so it's ensuring that you have, you have. So you, you said earlier when we were chatting, um, when you first, your first foray, your first exploratory dealings or, 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 or thoughts about doing something in shoes started with you asking for help. T t tell me how, what, how that, how, what happened, how, how that worked out. Uh, so I was, in, is, I was in advertising in, in London and I got hold of, um, I can't remember where from, from a trade show or somewhere, I got hold of a, a kind of directory of English shoe factories um, and I went through the ones, I just looked for information of the ones that I knew and I thought I'll, I'll contact them, Crockett and Jones, Church, um, um, George Cox, Loke, Cheney, those kind of things. I thought, what I'll do is I'll just ring them up, and there was no email back then, or it was early, certainly the factories didn't have email. Rang them up, just said, um, I'm thinking of starting my own shoe collection, uh, made in England, could I come and see somebody? And several of them said no, straight off. Like Church said, well, we don't make for other people, so that's fair enough. Crockett Jones said, I'm with Crockett and Jones. I went to see them, but they basically said, look, we don't do any kind of development or anything. If you're happy to use our lasts and, and our patterns, so you can have, you know, if we do this shoe, you can have that shoe, but, you know, you can change the colour, you yeah. can change the sole, but, that, you know, you, we're not going to do a new pattern for you. You can, do, you can have your, your, your colour of our shoe. Yeah, so it's like, well, that's not going to work. So, um, anyway, so I rang up George Cox, and um, this guy answered the phone, and he said he was in charge of sales for George Cox. And he said, because uh, they'd all been quite difficult and awkward and didn't want to see me, and you know, 
And then he said, look, the best thing to do is I can tell you stuff over the phone. Best thing to do, jump on a train, get off at Wellingborough, I'll pick you up in my car, I'll drive you to the factory and I'll tell you all about it and show you around. And he spent probably three or four hours together in the factory and he went through everything. I had all these questions and he just told me everything. You know, what are the minimums? How do I get leather? Well, we've got our own leather here. You can choose from that or you could go and buy your own leather, but the minimums on that, da da da. All the technical stuff. I wrote a thousand notes. Um, then didn't do anything about it for like a year and a half because I was like heavily up to my neck at work and it was really busy. And then thought, I, w- I really, really want to do that thing now, that shoe thing. Uh, I've got, you know, I've decided how to do it and everything. So I want to go back up and get hold of that guy again because he was so helpful. I've got more questions. Rang them up. He said he was uh, retired. So he had left a year earlier. So um, I said, look, can, can, I, can you give me his number because I want to get hold of him. I've got questions for him. And they said, no, we can't, but give me your number. I'll give it to him. And if he wants to call you, he will. If not, you know. So did that. He ran, next day, he rang me up. I said, can I come and see you? Went to see him, and he's sitting in his bedsit in, um, uh, near Earls Barton, between Northampton and Rushton. And he said, I've just been sitting here ever since, you know, they, they, they basically sacked me, you know, for being 65. I didn't want to retire, but they retired me. But just, I mean, okay, so he's not a skilled shoemaker. No. But he's a skilled shoe salesman, specialist. Yeah. yeah. Why are we pushing the, those skills into extinction? Yeah. Because the, the secret is to keep them alive for as long as possible. And, yeah. and the, story's, the story's sad, but it doesn't end sad. No, I, I, I said, look, you know, I'm why don't you come and help me? I'm starting this thing, as I said to you, 18 months ago. Um, and I'd just like to, you know, maybe a couple of days a week, I'll come up here, you should take me to a factory. To, I took him to um, a shoe fair in, in Dusseldorf. We went to Dusseldorf, went, went on all the stands, you know. And I'd pick up a shoe and say, you know, what do you think of this? He'd say, oh, you don't want that. The, the way they stitch those is terrible. That'll fall off in a minute. And, um, you know, so we did all of that. And then, and then I said, you know what, um, it's, it's really valuable. Um, I really like, you know, what, what you t- the way you talk about the brand and everything, it's really nice. Um, I wonder if I, can I persuade you to, I'm gonna open a shop. Um, can I persuade you to come and work in the shop? And he said, well, no, I can't, I don't want, I don't want to come and live in London or anything like that. So I said, but I, I'll tell you what, I'll come in, I'll come down on a Saturday. I'll get the train down on a Saturday and I'll come and work on a Saturday in the shop. I said, fantastic. So for about two years when I started, this old boy, I I bought him a suit and um, I got this young guy, Howard, who's still the manager now and still the original manager. Is this the Soho shop? No, no, this is my my shop, which is on the King's Road. So my original shop is is still there on the King's Road. Yeah, yeah. and um, so the first two years was Howard, um, this really good looking black guy, and I've got the, both the same suit. And Tom, this um, 65, 66 year old um, old boy from Northampton, and they st- stood in the shop and it was a hoot. Because Howard was a sales guy, yeah. and I, he was from German Street, and he was a sales guy, and he was like, yeah, well, you know, you've got to try it on. Oh, you look fabulous in that. They look great with those trousers. You can wear those with jeans. You can da da da. And Tom was there going, you know. So the way they make this sole is they stitch that in there, and then they do that, and they're telling jokes and stories about. And it was just a lovely kind of mix. So Tom was the authenticity, and Howard was the kind of London, you know, modernity, if you yeah. like, and and salesperson with the patter and the making somebody, you know, a younger guy feel like. I suppose Howard was more about the fashion side of it, and Tom was about the construction, and it was great. Ultimately, Tom didn't want to keep coming down, it was too much for him, so, uh, so he stopped. Um, but it was great. It was but he's, he's a really important part of your story, because without him, without yeah. that finger hold, yeah. this would have been a lot harder for you. Yeah, that, that, was, that wasn't Branson. Um, so great. This yeah, but was, that's the part this the the story. Yeah, this is me getting transitioning from advertising yeah. into shoes, and and I needed a fast track 
of learning about shoes, how they're made, what the leathers are, what's important, and I need to learn, and I need to learn from the factories, but with an interpreter, because the factories, um, you know, had another agenda. So obviously, they would want to sell me a certain leather or a certain thing, and say, you know, whereas Tom was there to say, mm, I don't, don't believe that, yeah, I wouldn't believe that, I wouldn't believe this, and you know. So how, so did, you, how did you get from there? Because I, I yeah. get that, that's your brand, yeah. that's Tim Little on the King's Road, your brand, matching it with clothes. How did you get from there to buying Grenson? So in 2004, so I've been, my store had been open for about seven years by then, seven or eight years. I got a phone call um, from a guy who said he was the owner of Grenson. And did I know Grenson? I said, yeah, of course I know Grenson. I said, I've actually, they've made, no, they haven't made shoes for me by then, but their salespeople have been trying to get me to make shoes in their factory. And I was making in Alfred Sargent mainly at the time. Um, Great brand, actually, Yeah, lovely, yeah, lovely. Um, and they made all of my shoes at that point, and Grenson were trying to persuade me to do a higher-end line with them. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, I said, yeah, I, I know Grenson, I've even met with some of your people before. And he said, well, um, I've bought the business off my dad. My dad's retiring. I work in the city. Um, I'm a private equity guy. And what we do in private equity is we buy businesses that are struggling sometimes and we put new management in and they turn it around. You know, if we see something of value in the business but it just needs managing better, that's how we do it. And I said, look, that's what I'm going to do with my dad's business. I've taken it off him so that he can go and retire because it's been worrying him to death. It's been doing really badly and it, you know, he, it's affecting his health. So I've taken it off, bought it off him, literally, um, and I'm looking for somebody to, to, to run it, to turn it around. So I went to see him and, you know, I was a bit sceptical about it, because I was in my own business, you know, and I was kind of enjoying it. But um, I thought, do you know what, I, I could do with it, I, I quite like the challenge of it. And I've always been really interested in having a factory. My dad had a factory. Yeah. Uh, he was a textile and lace maker in Nottingham. So I grew up in a factory. You know, every Saturday morning I went with my dad to the factory and I'd walk around with him, he'd be checking everything and I'd be messing about in the factory. And then when I was like 15, 16, in the holidays I used to go and work in the factory. Um, and then when I got to like 17, 18, I was driving the lorries and, you know, yeah. doing deliveries and I was always in the factory. So, so, um, yeah, it was the factory thing was really important, and, and so I agreed to do it. Did it, did it for um, three and a half, four years, and then he started like um, we'd done so much, but in turning the brand around, we changed the collections, got some new people in, younger people, people who were from the fashion industry and understood a bit more about how to sell it and marketing, how to tell the story and. We've got it all like really starting to work, but the sales weren't pouring in. They were growing nicely, yeah. but we were selling. I was turning away a lot of stores. I only want to sell to the best stores. So it was taking a bit of time, and he kind of lost his nerve. Not lost his nerve, that's not fair, but just thought. His impatience set in. Yeah, and yeah. you know, saying, you know, how long is this going to take, you know? And I was saying, look, the next big thing is I want to develop a, a website. A, a, um, an e-commerce website and that's going to cost quite a bit of money. Basically said no, I'm not putting any money in. At that point I left and said, oh, I agreed I'd carry on doing the designing the collections for them and I'd sit on the board and just come to board meetings and just do that and I'd go back to my own stuff. And then um, he called me up after a year of that he called me up and said, look, I, I want to sell it. Will you, will you come back in and just sell it? To, you know, get it in shape to sell it. And so I said, yeah, I would. And then the first question was, you know, can I buy it? And um, the problem with me buying it is, I don't think I'll ever be able to pay what I think you'll probably want for it. And he said, he said, look, my life is about deals. And where there are two people 
who want to do a deal, but there's something in between that's stopping them. I've got a thousand and one different ways of breaking that down and work, working it out somehow to not get that out of the way so that those two people can come together. At least that's what I do for a living. So let's sit down and work it out. So we sat down and said, well, the amount of money, da, 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 when I pay for it. And he sat down and said, I want you to own the business. From a family, this is my family's business for 30 years. And, and I know that you know, you're the right person to carry it on. Um, so from a legacy point of view, that's important. And also, you're the easiest person to sell to because you won't be coming here for a year doing due diligence, upsetting everybody, you know, and all of that stuff. I know it'd be a quick process. So he sat down and he worked out a way, he worked out a way between us, but he helped a lot in terms of when I paid for stuff, yeah. paid over a period of years, as and when we sold product and all of that. And it was it went beautifully. It ran absolutely beautifully. Amazing. But the real thing that, that that made it work was the first thing I did was was um, set up an e-commerce yeah. website. So you saw that early. Yeah, well, I, I, I did it on my own brand in 1998. That's really early. So that was pretty early then. I did it then, and I met this guy. I didn't even have an email address in 1998. <laughs> yeah, that was bad. I mean, for the first kind of three months, we didn't get a single order, but <laughs> yeah. nobody was buying on, online. But. So uh, two final questions, because yeah. I've like, eaten into your day, and I'm sorry. Right. Firstly, what did your dad think when you bought the factory? Um, he was very worried about it because he's a bit of a pessimist. And he, his issue, oh, the Grenson thing. Mm. Oh, no, no, sorry, that's not. He was worried about when I set up in shoes. Yeah. It was such a departure. Sure. And, you know, I, you can imagine in advertising, I was earning lots of money. Yeah, yeah. All very nice, director of an agency. Yeah. Everything smooth. And he's like, what are you doing? Really? Shoes? How, you don't know anything about them. You know, he's from an era where you do one thing for life, yeah, yeah. and you wouldn't dream, it'd be crazy to change if you're doing okay, you know. So that was tricky. The Grenson thing, um, yeah, he really liked it. He really liked the idea of it. He was very worried, because he's a pessimist, and he's worried, and he said, he said, you know, running a factory, it's bittersweet. It's like, there are days when you absolutely love it, and it's, it's in your blood. You can't ever leave it. Um, and there are days when you just think, what the fuck am I doing? This is a nightmare. And he said, all the issues, 99% of the issues are people. They're not, it's not about machine breaking. Every, everything to do with physical normal it is easy. You can solve everything. It's the people. It's like somebody comes in and it's, and the factory takes, everybody is involved in the making of that product. So the weakest link is your problem. You get somebody comes in and they're having a bad day or they're upset or they're ill, they're not in or whatever, or they leave. And that fucks up the entire thing. Yeah. It's not, you don't have like a hundred people each just making the same thing. They're just, you know, you're making sweets. That person, so if one person's not there, you can make 99 sweets instead of a hundred. If that person's not there, you can't make anything. You can't put a heel on, you can't do you a can't break, you can't... Yeah, the shoes just stop at the heel, the guy who puts the heels on. That's really interesting. And when he came in, did he, did he, did he play? Did he like to, because obviously with yeah. his background, yeah. did he become you as a, as a 12 year old messing around in the factory on Saturday? No, uh, not really, I think it was a bit, I think it's also, there's a, there's a bit of a thing about, um, there's a, there's a whole kind of relationship between you and the work of the guys on the shop floor and everything. Um, and I think he was kind of, I don't know, I don't think he wanted to come in and look all confident and all, you know, it's like, oh, this is our business kind of thing. I think he would like, wanted to look like a guest, and yes. respectful of the guest. So he was quite quiet and, you know, didn't, but he was fascinated and loved it and had all these questions. Of, Things that I thought, hell, I forgot that you own, you know, I almost forgot that you had a factory. Your whole life you're in a factory. Like, what a bloody clever question that is. That's the thing that drives me nuts. And that, and that was my last question. Yeah. Did he continue to teach you once you bought it? Did he continue to ha ask questions yeah. and, and, and push and push what was happening in the manufacturing side of things? 
Yeah, a, a little bit. Um, it, but it, the way I learnt the most, I think, and still do, I still talk to them about it on a regular basis, but um, the thing I, the best thing was stories. So he'd go, he'd go, oh, you know, there was this time we had this big order for some customer. We had to get it out the door and this, this happened. Um, what we had to do, so we all got around the table and thought, how are we going to get over this, you know? And, we got, and what we did, we, we rang up somebody and, go, and I thought, oh, God, that's a good idea. That's a really that's good really idea. And things like that. So he'd tell these little stories about, always about something that goes wrong. Every story in a factory is about something that's gone wrong. <laughs> you know, because that, that's, everybody's obsessed with something that, you know, that's, you can hear it all, it's all working nicely. And then there'll be a knock on my door. The first thing you hear is everything goes quiet. And there'll be a knock on the door, like, yeah, what? Um, yeah, there's a problem, we've got a problem with the soul stitcher. And <laughs> <laughs> Do you like it? Do you regret doing this? You, are you pleased you did no, it? No, no, this, this is totally, at the risk of sounding like something on X Factor, this has completely defined my life. You know, I, I had uh, 12, 10, 12 years in advertising. I worked. Um, most of that time was working with, not most of that time, but the last five years working just with Adidas, turning around their brand from an old, boring brand into something that could be with And we were advising them on everything. Amazing. But this is the thing that's totally defined everything for me. That's you know, these, I, just, there's the thing about employing people, which anybody with a business will tell you, when you're employing people, you feel incredible sense of responsibility. You know, they've got mortgages, they've got families, they've got holidays, they've got, you know, that are paid for out of what we do here. Um, and we now employ twice as many people as we did, you know, when we started, when I started. How many do you employ now? Um, about a hundred, roughly a hundred. It's amazing. In total. Um, so that, that bit's really important. And then just the making of the product is something that's still as beautiful every time I go. It sounds so corny to say it, but every time I go down there and just picking up a product that's half made, that's fully made, and you see it going into the box at the end, um, and you just think, this is a really lovely thing. These kind of big skins of leather come in and bits and pieces and stitching and twine and the, and then this beautiful shaped lovely shoe. It's magic isn't it? It's magic. It is magic. Yeah, it is. And I mean, anybody who's not been in a factory can't imagine how that, when you say to them, can you imagine how that's made? How would you make that? They can't even get their head around um, a last, you know, so you pull yeah. the leather over the last, they go and they see it and they go, oh god, that's how you get the shape. That's really interesting. They always think in terms of a mould, like a mould, you pour something into a mould and then it sets. They can't get a head around. So how do you get that shape? You can't do it. You can't pour leather into a mould. It, it's one of the first things I, I ever wondered when, when I looked at my, my, in this case, DMs. But I looked at the at the piece between the heel and the ankle and the curve. Yeah. And I thought, how do you make leather go in? And obviously, this covers the stitching, yeah. and this bit is shorter than this bit. But you don't think like that unless, yeah. and I spent nearly 15, 20 years, never in my own factory, one day, yeah. one day, never in my own factory, always advising other people, initially in, in Yorkshire on textiles, um, engineering, manufacturing, electro, all of those things I've done. And so I, I, I can't leave today without a tour of the factory. It, it yeah, yeah. would be wrong of me to do that. Yeah. Um, I love it, but you're right, people don't think about how they get the stuff on their feet, faces, arms and legs, yeah. or in their lives. They don't think about that. No. And behind every single manufacturing process is a person. Behind every pair of hands is a brain. Yeah. Behind, behind every brain is someone that's got the heart and the purpose to drive the business. And behind every single business is a collection of extraordinary people and a history. Mm. And that's what we buy these days, mm. as much as a product. Yeah. Awesome. I, I can't stop. I can't yeah. thank you. So hopefully you found that interesting. Um, Tim's incredible. And um, to pick up an old brand, a dying brand, um, a brand that is just incredible, beautiful shoes. And there are lots of those companies in Northampton that make beautiful shoes. But to pick one up and to turn it around. Um, and, and what I noticed as I'm walking around the factory with him was just the, the love and the respect 
of the team f- for their for their leader um and that's i've visited in my career i don't know a thousand businesses in 25 years easily easily that um and i i very rarely see that level of um of, of love and support for for the leader so that was quite astonishing Ir- irrelevant or, or, or aside to the quality of the, of the products and stuff but to see these kind of skilled craftspeople look at their leader with such um such affection and respect um, real authority g- genuinely imp- impressive um and you know whether or not you wear brilliant expensive shoes or you wear stuff from from high street retailers you, you've got to admire great business acumen when you see it in the same way that you should admire great design and great craftsmanship and um yeah really beautiful so um i don't know who we're going to do next actually um you can now subscribe to this on um on itunes as i think i said earlier and uh i will i'll think about who to talk to next give me a call if you're interested thank you